Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 7th, 2020 episode, episode 43. Today is more of a medley of learnings. Uh, it's been one of those days where you just look at the time and you go, where did my day go? <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll just kind of compile all the things I learned today. Um, it wasn't really particularly particularly a good day for deep work um i'd say the deepest work i did was my three-hour training session at home and honestly i love that very much so so but while i do that i tend to listen to podcasts and get a lot of learnings out of that but instead of sharing like the four was it four or five different podcast episodes i listened to i picked one that kind of stood out and there were some other, I think, avenues that my curiosity took me um, for the day. And one particular thing is on the food delivery market. And then the other was on just reviewing some of my notes from an investor I admire called Nicholas Sleep from his Nomad Investment Partners, as well as his previous, uh, I think, place of fame marathon, I think, marathon asset management. I think that's the full name. It's the UK-based uh, investment company. So I'll kind of start off with, um, I guess, the food delivery market marketplace. So this is just more of the more more like a ramble and then some thoughts. It's not really cl- clearly thought out, but I thought I'd kind of share things I learned and what I thought about it. Um, kind of, I guess, a bit of a shout out to a buddy of mine who sent me the article, I think it was last week about Uber Eats or Uber potentially acquiring Postmates. And then I think early this week, um, it became, I think, official or it hasn't been fully approved yet by the regulators, but it's, I think, probably going to go through. And so Uber Eats will, or Uber will acquire Postmates. And so Uber Eats and Postmates will have a collective, I think, market share of something like 30% in the US and DoorDash has a 45%. um, And Grubhub, with Justy Takeaway as 23%. And so these are market shares in the U.S. based on a May 2020 uh, sales figure, So which which was pretty fascinating. I didn't realize how big DoorDash actually was. I, I always thought it was a battle between Uber Eats and Foodora, um, mainly because I don't, I've never used DoorDash before and I only use Uber. I, actually, I started using Foodora. That was the first delivery app I used for a very long time. And then I just moved over to Uber Eats just because it was just easy. But um, knowing now that DoorDash is bigger than Uber Eats, I wonder if I'll just get, um, I don't know, more choices. So that's something I'll actually explore and maybe utilize the discount codes as well. And all the perks of starting to use a brand new app. Um, so if you're listening and if there are some like great codes or some way to get like the, I don't know, starter package benefits, just please let me know, shoot me a email or something like that, reach out from, um, my contact page on my website at OMD Ventures. And so I'll, I'll be happy to get all kinds of suggestions there, but 
Yes, I thought that was pretty fascinating um, to learn about DoorDash's market share compared to uh, Uber Eats. So Uber Eats, I think, had something like 22%, um, and Postmates had something like 8%. And so when they combine, I think they get a close to 30% market share. What is also interesting is how like, Postmates is being acquired in an all-stock deal of $2.6 billion, which um, I personally haven't seen in a very long time, these kinds of all-stock deals. Most of the companies I tend to research, uh, when they're, especially the acquisitive ones, um, tend to use cash, uh, which is, I think, much preferred. Um, but once again, if type of allocation decision is considered, if you believe your stock is overvalued, the ideas to use a stock offering um but in this case for uber i don't know if it's the idea that your stock's overvalued or if they just have no money um that i think i think it's more closer to the latter and it makes me wonder do they even have a pathway to free cash flow like i've never actually looked into the business so once again these are just ramblings and random thoughts and stuff i've just read on twitter it's all i really know about uber but it's i think a very contentious topic um that people are constantly considering i've i've met and spoken to people that I think are very smart who believe Uber will do really well. And I've also met people who are, once again, very smart and I respect and they don't think Uber will do well. So it'll be interesting how all this stuff pans out. But I got curious and I thought, well, let me try to um, dig a little around. And one thing I think that caught my mind was before I listened to an interview on the Invest Like the Best podcast with Sarah Tavel, or Tavel, I think. Um, she's one of the partners at Benchmark. And she talked about how DoorDash and Uber Eats had very different strategies. She mentioned how Uber Eats tends to focus on large metropolitan cities. And I'm guessing it's because the ride sharing tends to work best inside a city. Um, And DoorDash, because they couldn't, I guess, kind of, or they found the metropolitan cities to be harder to penetrate, they actually targeted, targeted the suburbs. Um, and they ended up doing pretty well. So they had suburbs, rural areas, more of the small towns, small cities. And so although they were both competing in the broader food delivery market, it made me think that looking at market share numbers alone isn't very um, representative of what these businesses actually own in terms of how they're divvying up the actual market. Because in essence, it could actually be that DoorDash and Uber Eats aren't really competing with each other because if DoorDash owns all these small towns and Uber Eats isn't there then DoorDash isn't really competing with anyone now you can say that yeah but what how will they grow how will they expand won't they eventually clash yeah that's probably true but I think that kind of strategy definitely makes it um it it requires you to analyze companies in a little different way and yeah I think for example like for example for Uber Eats I could I don't know. It it makes me think that they probably would not um, venture into the small towns and rural areas because the economics probably won't make sense. Like I remember when I was talking to my Uber drivers when I used to live in Calgary. Uh, Calgary is a much smaller city than the city I'm living in right now, Toronto. And the Uber drivers in Calgary were telling me how it's really hard for them to make money there um, because everyone's kind of dispersed, everything's spread out. And they would kind of complain about how their friends and counterparts in Toronto made way more uh, money from all the rides. And yeah, I guess, I don't know the algorithm or I don't know the pay scale, but I guess the way it works is um, the more frequent trips you can complete, the better. It's not so much the distance. So since Calgary, each 
kind of trip I'd take would be about 30 minutes to uh, even like an hour. I'm not really, I guess like the Uber driver can't capitalize on the quantity of rides that they're giving. So I think that probably impacts it significantly. So that makes me think that Uber probably can't venture out into the smaller cities, um, which means that they, their Uber Eats business probably won't venture out into DoorDash's territory. But that's probably not the same case with DoorDash. DoorDash can probably move into metropolitan cities just because of the amount of density, amount of people that exist there. And if their unit economics um, are proven out to work inside the rural cities and small town areas, then it'll probably work just as well, probably even better inside the dense ecosystem inside a metropolitan city. So it's, it makes me feel like, I actually feel like DoorDash because they own, um, they, they dominate these niche regions. It'll make it harder for Uber to break into those, but it vice versa, it allows DoorDash to easily break into a metropolitan city. That's a thought that I've been having. Um, and I remember, so and I ended up reading that Uber de- Uber delivers in 750 cities globally. Um, so they're kind of in all over the world, in every like metropolitan city, like they're in Japan, um, they're in, I think, Latin America, they're in Europe, whereas DoorDash delivers in 4,000 cities, uh, but only focused on three specific countries. I think it was US, Canada, and I forget the third one. I apologize. But I guess, you know, we the... What, what do you call it home base bias just because i'm based in canada i only kind of remember those two names just north america in general but it seems north america is the main market for doordash so that got me thinking about um the kind of regional focus so food delivery has been around in south korea for a very long time i think i might have ranted on this before in a past podcast but yeah like i i've been getting you know even when i was young and i'd be, I'd visit South Korea like while I was living in Hong Kong. You'd get food delivered all the time. Um, and this is back in the late 1990s. Like we, food delivery has always been the norm. You expect everything to arrive within, you know, 10, 20 minutes. If it's not there in 30, at least 30 minutes, it's for free, all that. And I mean, you can get, you could get food delivered at a park, at a beach. Um, and this is time before GPS and smartphones. So food deliveries a huge um, cultural thing in South Korea. And I think when Uber Eats came out, it was for kind of my uh, Korean friends, just my, my family, when we talk about it, we, we felt like the West was finally kind of coming, catching up to the modern era. But anyhow, I was curious on the South Korean market to see, does Uber Eats even compete there? Turns out they actually pulled out in 2019. I had no idea. But um, the South Korea market is really run by one major uh, delivery service, so which is also interesting because back when um, I was more familiar with the market, it was every individual uh, restaurant had their own, I guess, delivery team. And now it seems that they've kind of gone through the consolidation phase where it's kind of like what it is now here in North America where you just have one app and then they just kind of take care of everyone. And so the company there is called Pedalminjok, which is the... I think the direct translation would kind of come out to something like delivery, com- the delivery community or the delivery nation. And it's owned by a business, by a company called the Wuwa Brothers. And they own about 75% of the market share in the South Korean delivery space. And so that's probably, one, that seems to be one of the reasons why Uber pulled out in something like the fall of 2019. 
And in late 2019, um, Peta Ninja was actually bought out by Delivery Hero, which is a German-based food delivery company that I had no idea about. So that was also fascinating. Um, it seems like Delivery Hero, um, they had their own app as, or they had their own app um, inside South Korea as well, but it could not compete, and they ended up actually acquiring the business. Something interesting also was Delivery Hero, although they're based in the German, uh, although they're based based on Germany, they ended up selling their German operations to what is now Justy Takeaway, which is the merger of Takeaway, which is a Dutch-based delivery uh, company, and Just Eat, which is a UK-based delivery company. So then right now, it seems like the big players are there's Uber um, with Uber Eats, and then there's DoorDash in North America. There's Delivery Hero, which is based out of Germany, but they do not have operations in Germany. And it seems like, at least from what I know, they practically own the South Korean market, which is, I think, estimated to be something like a $90 billion uh, delivery market. I think that that puts them at the fourth largest delivery market in the world, um, or food delivery market. And Delivery Hero also apparently controls 70% of the Middle East, which is also fascinating. And I think they've done that through a bunch of acquisitions as well of a lot of the local um, local players. And Just Eat Takeaway uh, tends to dominate most of Western Europe. Like they own the UK and I guess Germany through the um, Delivery Hero acquisition as well. And so that got me thinking more about um, how the delivery market ecosystem could kind of pan out. Like it seems like the localization strategy uh, is exceptionally important it's kind of the you know the the phrase niches get riches um like i i feel that doordash has a much superior position in north america because it that's what they focus on and they're dominating all these um small cities and rural areas that kind of make up the unique north american structure compared to i'd say um south korea where something like 70% of the population lives in Seoul. So you just have to dominate that one city. And and I think something like another like 10%, 15% would live in Busan. So you really need to dominate two major cities and you kind of have the entire country's market in one sense. So if, you, if Uber Eats can't compete with a local player there, then it's really hard. And I think that's also the idea of how it's, it's kind of like when you expand to other countries, you really want people expanding to be part of the culture. Like you want them to understand it. Like, for example, I think um, Netflix, when they launched Netflix Korea, I think they did it extremely well because they all the people there are kind of part of the whole kind of Korean broadcasting team. And I think the dramas that tend to do well, um, at least from the producers and writers I know they're all very famous people in like the Korean culture and so that ends up creating very um, I guess praiseworthy praiseworthy original content and I I am using a lot of the I guess comparisons of culture using the South Korean culture just because that's what I'm most familiar with but I honestly feel that is a very big deal I really think it's really hard for people who grew up in North America to ever understand or truly understand the graphic cultural nuances of various places that they've never lived in or they've kind of grown up in. Um, it's just really hard to, I think, think like locals. And if you can't think like a local, you can't really deliver the service like a local. 
Now, it's not impossible. Like Uber Eats apparently is doing pretty well in Japan um, and they've been able to understand the Japanese culture and their, the consumer tastes there very well. But I think it's very... Um, it'll be interesting to see how the battle ha- plays out in um, Southeast Asia where there's like Gojek and Grab, which are the bigger players in Southeast Asia. And I think they're all operated by founders who are from there, which can make it very interesting. Like when I talk to my friends who have either grown up in Southeast Asia, um, either in like Singapore or Indonesia um, or Vietnam, for example, they talk about how the West likes to look at Southeast Asia as like a bucket, just as one giant market. But the reality is that each individual country operates completely differently. Like Indonesia operates completely different from Malaysia and they operate completely different from Singapore and Vietnam and vice versa. So I think it's kind of hubris for the West to believe that um, they can bucket Southeast Asia as like one singular market. And yeah, I think it'll have to be more of a battle where each company will have to, or the players that win in each market will have to kind of originate um, or at least have teams that came from that specific market. And so if Gojek wants to win in Indonesia and Vietnam, they'll have to have a full operational team there. And the people that run it probably will have to be Vietnamese or Indonesian, for example. So that makes me wonder um, whether it'll just be this massive consolidation play by the people with, I guess, the largest pockets. And they'll just continue to try to buy out local players. And it makes me wonder if there's... If it's really worth um, players like Uber or like DoorDash expanding to outside markets, um, because it seems like it's much harder to do. It's much um, possibly efficient to allow the incumbents, like the um, people inside the country, to build a delivery app that serves the functionality that they need for their culture and then having aggregators at the top. So I don't know. That's got me thinking more. Um, and it also kind of questions DoorDash's opportunity going forward. Like, I think DoorDash is operating a good chunk. of They're leading the U.S. market. And in one way, I think their dominance in North America will probably go stronger than Uber's actually will. It's just because of the strategy that the two different strategies that they took. Um, but at the same time, it makes you wonder, well, what's after? Like, um, because one can say, yeah, the, the delivery ecosystem will still grow. The market will still grow. And maybe it's not that DoorDash just owns North America, and maybe that'll be their market. Um, But to extrapolate that DoorDash can go out and dominate Europe, go out and hit up Asia, I think is very difficult. Um, At least I'm very skeptical of it, at least based on what I've seen so far. So potentially it could be that DoorDash has to operate independently just just focus on the North American market, or maybe they'll get acquired by an even bigger player with bigger pockets and it'll just continue to be a consolidation play. But it seems like um, what most people are talking about is that each country slash region will probably have like a duopoly structure. And I think that probably makes sense in most cases. I think even in China, um, which is a pretty, you know, it's a market with pretty high barriers to entry. Like you can't really have any Western players go inside of it. Um, And I think it's, practically a duopoly there with Meituan and Ellie, I think. So I think that probably makes sense. Now, would it be two equal sides duopolies or would it be more of a skewed one where you have one player that owns 70% and the other that owns maybe 20%? And I think that would depend on the economics. 
But I could actually see a scenario where Uber Eats never becomes a dominant player in any market just because their their way of operating kind of needs to incorporate ride sharing. Because of that, they might never be a dominant player in any market they play in. They might always be the second fiddle, and then they'll always be a local player that will always um, dominate and focus on the food delivery side. So that's a thought. But yeah, that's it's my first foray into learning about these delivery companies. I've never been really interested in it, but I thought it'd be pretty cool, and it was cool to kind of see and grasp how things are playing out globally. And I just wanted to kind of... <laughs> I was curious, and I started looking up uh, Domino's Pizza because you can never really ignore um, food delivery without pizza because, at least in North America, they're kind of the big dogs there, and Domino's owning more, something like, what, 50% of the market share in pizza deliveries in the U.S., at least. Um just looking at the how the company's done over the last ten years, like you, if you look at the share price, like it's insane. I think from twenty ten to twenty twenty, the share price has grown at a kager of forty percent, um, which makes you go, "Wow, it's incredible how well uh, a pizza franchise can do." And these guys are a franchise model, so you kind of just skim a uh, percentage at the top, and you know the gross margins are much lower than Uber Eats or um, or the other delivery companies like Just Eat Takeaways, I think. Or even like Grubhub. So I think Uber Uber's gross margin combined with Uber Eats and the ride sharing is still like north of 50%. But um, Domino's is at something around, I think it was 39%, 40%. But the gross margin has continuously been, incre- uh, been increasing over the years at a kager of 3% over the last like 10 years or so. So that's also been very impressive. It's kind of a marvel of just sheer operational efficiency of the company and it makes me think yeah like it might be worth looking into um i remember looking into domino's pizza in the uk before and that business is also very different from the u.s just because of the cultural difference of what uh pizza delivery is for people in the uk versus the u.s which continues i think the thesis of how food delivery just can't be um extrapolated into like a global market just based on how it's kind of developed developed in one economy even if it's the u.s economy because culturally they're all very different cool so that's one topic (laughs) i'm kind of out of breath already um let's see just catching my breath here let's see which topic to talk about next um i'll talk about nick's sleep so this one's pretty short but i'll start up by reading a quote so the quote goes In the office, we have a whiteboard on which we have listed the very few investment models that work and that we can understand. Costco is the best example we can find of one of them. Scale efficiencies shared. Most companies pursue scale efficiencies, but few share them. It's the sharing that make the model so powerful. But in the center of the model is a paradox. The company grows through giving more back. We often ask companies what they would do with windfall profits and most spend it on something or other or return the cash to shareholders. Almost no one replies, give it back to customers. How would that go down with Wall Street? That is why competing with Costco is hard to do. The firm is not interested in today's static assessment of performance. It is managing the business as if to raise the probability of long-term success. End quote. So um, if you're not familiar with Nick Sleep and Nomad Investments, I would say he's kind of the person that most people credit with the business model idea of the shared, what he called um, scale efficiency shared, which later I think people kind of changed the wording around to economies, shared economies of scale. And it's very, uh, it's a model that's very well tied to Amazon, um, even sometimes Zoo Plus, the pet food delivery company 
and uh, Costco. And these are all companies where it's all just focused on lowering prices and providing the lowest cost solution at these razor, razor thin margins, but they just kind of dominate the entire market. And Nick Sleep is very famous for his kind of very early investments in Costco, Amazon, um, Ocado, the UK-based uh, grocery delivery service. Um, he also was an early investor in Zooplus, ASOS, uh, which was the early e-commerce um, search engine, uh, Games Workshop, which is slightly different, but I'll talk about why they all kind of se- seem to touch upon a similar thread. But th- I think um, I've always been... The, the idea of shared economies of skills is not new. It's something I learned uh, a few years back when I first discovered Nixley. But I wanted to kind of go through this co- the collection of... I've just been collecting as many quotes of his as I can throughout um, the internet. And it's kind of sometimes really hard to come by because his shareholder letters are really hard to find. So if you're listening and if you have shareholder letters from Nick Sleep's Nomad Investment Partnership, please send it my way because... Um, yeah, I I used to have a few, but I ended up losing it some somewhere. Like I had like a PowerPoint and everything, but yeah, I'm trying to find as much stuff about him as I can. Um, but yeah, so I was looking through that, and I this particular line kind of hit me because not so much of the idea of the shared economies of scale, because that's a model that I appreciate um, pretty well, but the idea of focus. Um, because Nick Sleep's portfolio over time, I think I've looked, seen glimpses um, of his early 2000s and kind of his late 2000s portfolios. And they've always been very concentrated, like under 10, 10 companies. And the companies that were in it, um, they, they don't change often. Like I think Amazon and Costco have kind of been staples in there for a while. But yeah, there have been newer ones and older ones kind of going in and out, like Zooplus, Ocado, ASOS, and Games Workshop. And all those companies tend to kind of follow some theme of either, yeah, they're companies with the business model of shared economies of scale um, and or they're very consumer-oriented businesses. None of them are what people would call like enterprise SaaS companies, which tend to be the rage these days. Um, and it's the I think the idea that I took away was just this idea of focus, focusing on business models that you business models, ideas, companies that you actually can understand. Um, because I think that's a very hard thing for me because I tend to get very curious about very a lot of different things. And I know I have to focus, but sometimes I get carried away and I get excited by all these new models. So like, you know, learn about, you know, janitorial cleaning companies and HVAC companies, elevator companies. And I think it might just be that I'm still at this stage where I still have to look at hundreds of business models until I can whittle out the things I can truly understand versus the ones I just have a harder time doing. And, you know, my understanding can develop over time. And I guess that's kind of why I've been focusing on breadth lately, where I just want to see as many different business models as I can and then see which ones do I gravitate more towards because I think there's as much personality um, assessment required in investing where I will be able to understand certain companies because of my own unique background, et cetera. Like I can understand accounting software or, um, you know, even professional service organizations better just because I've worked in that field. But because I've worked there, I also don't like investing there um, because I don't believe they're actually necessarily good businesses, in my opinion. But uh, that's me for another day. But the idea is that, yeah, focus. Um, It's just super impressive how he's just focused on this specific type of company group. And he doesn't have to 
move away from it. And obviously, I think industry selection matters. Like, I think um, as well, Damodaran, he pu- publishes, I think, an annual report on like, the best industries to focus on. And Jeff Gannon from Focus Compounding also talks about how in most cases, 50% of your returns kind of detect dictated on the industry that the businesses tend to be in and i think there definitely is a merit to that although i think classifying industries gets harder over time as um, companies start to i think mesh various business models together but um, i think there still is an element of focus required and it's also getting comfortable with choosing not to look at various other businesses although there might be opportunities but you know, there's just so many ways to make money and you don't actually have to be in all the uh, companies that appear to be good businesses to make money. Like, so for example, I think the things I've been struggling with is I know that payment processing uh, is a good investment. Like I know Visa, MasterCard are good investments. I know, um, you know, PayPal and Square. Like they, there are these, you know, various kinds of investment theses there that can play out, but Personally, for me, they're not very interesting. Same with indexes. Like I know stock or sorry, stock exchanges. Like I know stock exchanges like the CBOE, ICE, um, CME. Like they're all. I understand that they're good businesses, but they're also not very interesting. And I think that's kind of pushed me away from owning those businesses. I've owned them in the past, but at the same time, I think when after I reflected on it, um, it was more so. Yeah, like, I just understand it's a good business, but I'm also not very interested in it at all. So. Learning to be okay with that and moving on, I think, um, is definitely part of the journey. And I think reading my this kind of particular passage and reviewing my notes on Nick's sleep made me think about that as well. And finally, I'll try to keep it brief. I know we're kind of at the 30-minute mark, but um, the final thing is I listened to uh, the recent podcast episode from Invest Like the Best podcast with Charlie Songhurst, and he is a angel investor who's invested in more than something like 483 uh, companies as an angel investor and he's been at I think Microsoft as something like a head of stra- some kind of uh, head of strategy kind of role I'm sorry Charlie if I don't remember your exact position from before but I think the most fascinating thing is that he's just invested in so many companies met so many entrepreneurs and he just kind of shares all his lessons and learnings from that and I took out some very interesting um models frameworks from the conversation so a few that i want to share one is the importance of studying failures now there's the jury's kind of out i i know i've read about a lot of people i respect um who say you should never study failure you should study successes and i know the exact opposite where people who also i respect say you should never study success you should study failures regardless of whichever is right or wrong i think they each have their own logic behind it Um, but this particular one that Charlie shares is the importance of studying fa- uh, failure is because you know most startups tend to fail. The success rate is really low. And a lot of times it's about surviving. And if you just focus on survival, then to sur- focus on survival, you just have to focus on not dying, right? It's kind of the, once again, it's a model that I like to use often is Charlie Munger's uh, idea of constantly inverse, inverse, inverse. And Charlie Munger talks about how um, the simple idea is that if you knew where you would die, then you could just focus on not going there. And if you study failures of what made companies fail, well, over time, it's kind of it probably kind of boils down to a continuous pattern, and you just have to focus on avoiding the same 
uh, I guess, mistakes that other people, other companies have done. Because success is really hard to define. You don't really know why certain companies succeeded. Like there could be timing, there could be industry trends. There's so many things could have worked out that could have been factored into luck. But not dying could actually be more oriented with skill. Um, at least this is how, in, um, how I'm interpreting what Charlie's talking about. And I thought about, you know, overlaying that as an investor in public equities, which is who I am right now. And if I think about, yeah, what, what would stop me from blowing up an entire fund, right? Like where Buffett talks about, we're focused on not losing money. And it's things like, well, let's avoid things with excessive leverage, okay? Let's avoid excessive concentration, like putting all your money in one company, especially if you don't know everything about it. Like it's very different for, for me investing all my money in Berkshire Hathaway compared to Warren Buffett putting all his money into Berkshire Hathaway because A, Buffett, is an insider. He controls the company. He knows what's actually happening inside much better than I do as someone from the outside. And that kind of leads to the other learning of always knowing that you will never know as much about the business as an insider, especially when you're a public equity investor. So you just cannot have as much conviction as an insider does. So just because an insider has 95% of their wealth in one business doesn't mean, um, you know, I can take on that same amount of risk because it's slightly still different. Although I want to see that and I want to see some kind of incentive alignment, I will still know much less about the business than the actual insiders do. And so that's also kind of the idea of not having excessive concentration. Um, and yeah, like all the things like, you know, to even have a thesis based on market timing, that can probably possibly lead to blowups. So just not having things like that. Um, buying shitty companies and partnering with shit, uh, sketchy managers. That's also all possible things that can lead to bankruptcies and blow ups. So just trying to avoid that. Um, just having a list of things not to do, I think is extremely valuable. Um, so that was kind of something I thought about there. Something else, um, this is more of a fun thing I realized is, so there's an accounting software company called Zero. It's called X, spelled X-E-R-O. And I've been pretty familiar with them, at least in Toronto, because the people I've been meeting in the startup ecosystem, um, kind of led to me learning about Zero, the accounting software quite often. Um, it's kind of come up in my personal life a number of times as well. And I did not read, I did not know that they were a public company. Uh, and it turns out they're a public company based in New Zealand, which was very fascinating. And I think there, uh, Charlie talks about there's kind of that unique arbitrage where you have this fast growing company that's tackling a boring industry and it's based, it's listed on the New Zealand stock exchange, which doesn't tend you know, tends to have investors who are more focused on mining um, and different kinds of industries. And so there could have been a pretty interesting opportunity there, which leads to the idea of possibly also talent arbitrage by location. It's something I I utilize pretty heavily um, as part of my investment process because I like to focus on investing in companies where they have a competitive advantage based on the talent that they hire. And I think you know, Zero might have something like that in New Zealand compared and something some other companies I think are pretty similar are like how Shopify has that in Canada, Atlassian has that in Australia, Wix had possibly has that in Israel. Um, you can even say Stripe has that in Dublin. Um, but like and if you look at like Silicon Valley, I don't know how many companies can compete with against um, Google and Facebook on in regards to talent. It's just really hard to do that. Or you look at Seattle, there's Microsoft and Amazon. How many companies can really compete for top talent in those regions? Now, with remote work becoming more prevalent, um, the view on talent goes global, and I think that's an awesome thing for um, us as a society and civilization. And so in one way, that kind of 
geographical talent arbitrage might dissipate. But at the same time, I'm not sure. I feel there's still kind of these cultural things related to how a business is created um, that could still play a factor into this talent arbitrage by location. Um, And so it's something that Charlie talks about, which I thought was great to hear. It's kind of more, I've already believed in it, but when someone else talks about it, it kind of adds a little point to it. I know it's, it kind of plays into a form of bias in some way, but at the same time, I also like hearing other people's perspectives from their own experience to kind of get more data points. So that was pretty fascinating to hear. Um, I think just another thing I'll talk about, there's some more notes in my show notes you can look at if you want, but another one was just on the idea of how, from his observation, certain founders, based on like personality types, so you tend to be like an empathetic type of founder, I think he said, they tend to build very consumer-focused um, businesses. Whereas if you're more of a logic, quant-minded founder, you tend to build enterprise businesses. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, um, just based on personality types. I think uh, if you're kind of a long-time listener, you know that I tend to be pretty obsessed with how personality dic- should dictate how we make certain decisions and what, what we decide to do with our lives. And I think that's also pretty fascinating to know. Um, and it makes me wonder how that can translate into the kind of companies that an investor would be attracted to. Like I necessarily, like I personally am, I like looking at companies that other people don't like looking at. Um, it's just because I just like not conforming, but that's more, and that's the kind of personality. Um, but at the same time, I get bored by certain companies that are considered quote unquote boring. Like, like I said, like the payment processors, it's just not as interesting for me. But continuously thinking about the thread of what then can I focus on just like how Nick Sleep focuses on certain kinds of business models um, what are models that I'll understand better and the companies that I want to focus on so yeah this was more this kind of worked well with all these kind of things that um, I ended up digging into throughout the day and maybe I went down this this uh, particular thread because I, I was already in that kind of mindset I'm not sure but yeah that's the medley of learnings I hope this was interesting I hope this was fun and yeah Hope to have you back on the podcast again tomorrow. Take care.